If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Joshua chapter 5. We will be looking at the, um, primarily at the last three verses of that chapter. Southern Baptists are a particular kind of people. Um, we have particular things that we do not like. Uh, we have particular sayings that go along with that. There is a very famous saying that you shouldn't drink uh, smoke or chew or go out with girls who do. Uh, part of what's missing from that particular statement is gambling. We don't like gambling either. I'm not one really to speak against it. I bought a Milli Vanilli tape when I was 15, and uh, I'm pretty sure that my time would have been better spent playing that money on the nickel slots. However, uh, we, we have a problem with gambling for a number of, of different reasons. Most of them are simply stewardship reasons, but, you know, conceivably you could think of gambling simply as a way and a form of entertainment. Probably the worst form of gambling, however, is the lotto. I despise the lotto with every fiber that is in me, and I despise it for very good reasons. Not only because I'm never going to win it, although that doesn't help, it is primarily also because it preys on the poor. It is a tax that states have now gone to use that prey on poor people. And I'm not terribly familiar with how the lotto is run in Michigan, but my time spent in Kentucky, especially in the working with the public schools in Louisville and in Kentucky in general, where there are incredibly poor, and, and I don't mean poor simply economically poor, I mean literal poor in every sense of the word, public schools there. The lotto was used as a stimulus for higher education. And so they would pool that money, and whatever money didn't get sent back out was supposed to be pooled for scholarship money for children to go to college. And this is the way I primarily saw that money being used. Because the lotto is primarily played by poor people, and I'm not talking about middle-income people, I'm talking about lower-income people, predominantly doesn't even cover it. The vast majority of the people who play the lotto are incredibly poor because they're having held out to them this idea that you can get rich without any sort of discipline at all. It's just by the chance and by luck. And even the commercials that are being run are being told these people that if you play the lotto, there's a chance, there's, it's there, you can get rich. And so it preys on the poor people, these people who have to send their kids to public schools, these people who have to send their kids not just to public schools, but to failing public schools, kids who will not get an education, who have no chance of going to college, they are buying lotto tickets so that middle-income people can send their kids to college for free. That's primarily how it worked. The lotto is a horrible thing. Even for those who win, it turns out to be a horrible thing. A good portion of those people end up bankrupt anyway. They win their millions of dollars, and within a matter of years, they find themselves bankrupt. It is a very well-documented phenomenon. The reason for this is because it provides riches with absolutely no discipline on how to use the money that they've got because it was just given to them. They, they for any of a number of reasons, both good and bad. They've never had money. They don't know how to handle it. And it's not saying that they shouldn't have money. We would like poverty to cease. However, when they're just given that much money and they don't know how to handle it, they find themselves burning through it, and then all of a sudden they're in a worse position than they were in the first place because now they have no money, just like they didn't in the first place, but they blew their chance at containing it and having it and having a good life. Southern Baptists rightly oppose 
gambling in a number of different ways and rightly oppose the lotto. But we, unfortunately, have a lotto-type theology when it comes to salvation. And we think, like people who win the lotto, that they can have the riches of salvation without the discipline that's needed to maintain it. And we will talk, and this is true in a number of different avenues, in a number of different settings, and not just amongst Southern Baptist churches, but it's very prominent among Southern Baptist churches, that if you raise your hand, if you say a prayer with a pastor, if you walk an aisle at the end of a service, that pastor will look at you, he will tell you that you are saved, and then he will send you on your merry way under very good doctrines like the perseverance of the saints, that once you're saved, you're always saved. They will quote things like Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 10.28, I gave them eternal life or I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. They take these verses and they say, if you've confessed him, if you've believed in him, even for a second, no matter how else you live your life, then you will be saved because it's by grace and not by works. The way that a number of churches handle this is damnable. And they are leading people to hell because they are letting them think that because it is by grace that you are saved, that you can live your life any way you want to. You can walk in any manner that you see fit. And you can sin as much as you would like and grace will simply cover it up. It is a horrible Doctrine. It is the horrible, a horrible way to handle these problems. Today we come to a passage in the book of Joshua that hints at this. It is the hinge of all of the first act of Joshua. Joshua has three basic acts to it. The first act is the actual conquest of the land. The second act is the dividing up of the land and the fulfillment of God's promise. And the third act is Joshua reestablishing the covenant with the people. This first act hinges here. We've already gone over the first part of that first act. That as Moses stood outside the promised land and said, God will make his promises come true. He will give the promised land to the people. After he has died, he has given the people Joshua. And as we saw last week, he has both supported Joshua and said, I will be with you, Joshua. I will do marvelous works and deeds among you and also among the people so that you will always know that I am with you. But here comes the hinge. Joshua chapter 5. We'll read just these three verses for right now, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of our God. Joshua has sent spies into the land, And I think that the 
text itself implies that Joshua's probably on his own here. He, he is going out to look at Jericho itself. Now, he sent the spies into the land, but the spies were really reporting more on the, the nature of the people who were there. What was the mood of the people who was there? That's why at the end of chapter 2, when they come back, they say, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. It was a report on the people, not a report so much on the city. And Joshua, as the leader of the armies of the Lord, the one who is going to come up with the battle plan, has gone to spy out Jericho. He wants to know where are the weaknesses, where are the strengths, where do people come and go from? Is there there any place that we can attack that would be best? And he's mounting his battle plan, and as he does so, he comes upon somebody. Now, the picture that I have in my head when he does this is of a, a... in a movie where there's a close-up and someone is trying to crawl away from somebody and all of a sudden they run into the legs of somebody and he looks up and there's this giant standing before him. He's trying to be sneaky and all of a sudden there is a man standing before him and that man has a sword that is drawn. Even the way he says that he lifted up his eyes and looked makes this man seem like he is huge and he is a warrior and his sword is drawn. And Joshua does something very courageous and something very bold. And he charges him and he says, are you for us or are you for our our adversaries? Are you for the Israelites or are you for the Canaanites? Because there's only two groups of people here. In all of this land, if you are going to be in this land, you've got to know that there is a war going on and there's only two sides that you can choose. There's not a third side. You don't get to sit on the fence. We've been sent here to obliterate everybody in the promised land. So you need to make up your mind, sir, right now. Are you for us, the Israelites, or are you for us? the Canaanites. As we see, Joshua asked the wrong question. He asked the wrong question. It's a, it's a one or the other. It's dichotomous. There, there is no third option, and yet this guy stands before him and he says, no, simply no. You've asked the wrong question, Joshua. The question is not, am I for you or for your adversaries? Am I for you or against you? The implication is, the question is really, are you for me or against me? And notice how he identifies himself. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, I imagine that Joshua is herein confused in a number of different ways because one, the guy clearly didn't understand his question because he didn't answer it correctly. And two, Joshua himself is the commander of the armies of the Lord. He is the one who is leading the people into battle. He is the one who has been assigned this role by Moses. He was hand-chosen, not only by Moses, but by God. And he's been commissioned by God. And he has miracles supporting the fact that he is the commander of the army of the Lord. And yet this bloke stands in front of him and says, no, I'm not going to answer your question. You're not even asking the right question. And more than that, I am the one who is actually the commander of the armies of the Lord. What is more, the third thing that he says is just as confusing Now I have come, as though Joshua should have been expecting visitors, right? Someone has knocked on his door in the middle of the night, and he says, I'm here, as though Joshua should have been expecting him. Joshua has asked the wrong question. The question that Joshua wants to know is, are you for us or are you against us? But this guy makes it very clear that that's the wrong question. The right question is, because I am the commander of the armies of the Lord, the question is whether you are with me or against me. There's a couple of passages that we should look at to sort of understand where this is coming from. Both of these passages come from the book of Exodus. The first one happens in Exodus 33. 
In Exodus 33, we have Moses interceding for the people of God for the second time in two chapters. And it's not because the people have done wrong. It's because, well, it is the first time, but not because they've done wrong a second time. This is the lingering effect of the golden calf. So while Moses was up on the mountain, the people have made a golden calf and God has seen it. And he looked down and he said, Moses, your people have done a great atrocity. So here's what's going to happen, Moses. I'm going to slaughter the lot of them. I'm going to kill them all off, and then I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Moses intercedes, and he says, Lord, you can't, you can't do that. Because the Egyptians, they know that you brought this people out, and what are the Egyptians going to say? And, and you have put your name on this people, and what are other people going to say? You have given promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can't do that. And God says, okay, I won't. I won't. But in the beginning of chapter 33, God does go on. That intercession is very well known, but God goes on and has another outcome of the golden calf incident, which is, tends to be overlooked. In Exodus 33, the first four verses read like this. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I will, I will keep the promises that I've given to you, Abraham. I told you I wouldn't destroy the people. I meant it. You asked me to keep the promises before the people that I promised them, that I would give the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a land flowing with milk and honey. Go up and take it. It's yours. But, he says, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Why would they mourn? This is everything that they want, right? This is all of the blessings of God without any of the penalty of God. He says, I will give you the land flowing with milk and honey. I will send an angel and I will drive out the people before you, but I can't go with you. Not because of the incident, because I've already said the golden calf thing won't destroy the people for that. But he knows that this is one isolated incident that will happen among many. You are a stiff-necked people. Not you were, but you are a stiff-necked people. This is the first instance of many idolatries to come. And Moses, if I go with you, I'm going to destroy them. So I'm going to hold back. I'm going to stay back. I will give you the land. The people mourn over this, which is a little odd for us, but not for them. They know quite well that anything that happens to them, good, bad, or otherwise, is from the hand of God's. And even if this is convoluted into having multiple gods, some for fertility and some for harvest and some for rain, they know that everything that happens happens because God is with them. A God is with them to curse them. A God is with them to bless them. But if there is no God there, there is no bounty. There is no goodness. We don't think like that. We think if there's no rain, we need to build better irrigation systems. If there's too much rain, we need to build better ditches. If there's blight, we need to have better biologists to figure out how to deal with the blight. We think in terms of fixing our problems ourselves. These people were left without any of that. They knew very well that if they went into the promised land without a God, they would have nothing there. And so they mourned. And later in these verses, in verse 12, if you drop down there, 
Moses says to the Lord. He goes into the tent of meeting after he has come down the mountain. He goes into the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord. And Moses says to the Lord, see. This is not usually a way that somebody starts talking to the Lord. Listen up. You said to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He says, listen, you you say you're going to send an angel with me. That's great. Fantastic. I have no idea who this angel is. I have never dealt with an angel. I've dealt with you. I have met with you. I have talked with you. Your presence has been with me. And more than that, he says, you know my name, is what you told me. You know my name. It's interesting. Where in Exodus, when Moses has met God, did he tell Moses what his name was? God, of course, knows his name is Moses. God knows the name of every star in the universe. He knows the name of all of his people, and he knows the names of those who aren't his people. Of course, he knows his name. What does Moses mean by that? Well, if you go back to Exodus 3, in the burning bush incident, Moses has two distinct questions right when he meets God at the burning bush. After God has given him the charge to go to Pharaoh, to call his people out, and in verse 11 of chapter 3, Moses says to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a good question. I don't, why am I qualified for this? Who, who am I to be able to do something like this? God's response in verse 12 is this, I will be with you. That's Moses' name. That's who Moses is. Who am I? You are the man that I am with. So it doesn't matter, Moses I will qualify you. Just as we talked about Joshua in Joshua 1, it is God being with him that qualifies him. Who am I? I am the one, you are the one, that is, that I am with. I will be with you when you go. Again, it doesn't seem like it answers his question, but it totally answers his question. Moses is the one that God is with. If God knows his name, he says, I've known your name. If I've found favor in your sight, The favor that Moses speaks of, the name that he speaks of, is the fact that God is with him. He says, if this is true, you need to go with me. That is why at the end of Exodus 33, in verse 14, God relents and he says, my presence will go with you, Moses. Moses hears that God will withhold. He will send an angel. He will send a messenger who will destroy the people before him, but God then turns around and re-promises that I will be with you. And what do we have when we come back to Joshua? We have someone else sent by God, the commander of the armies of God, who is himself the Lord himself, standing before Joshua, saying, I've come now. I was the one who Moses spoke about. I was the one sent from the Lord, and even more than that, just like the burning bush, I am the Lord you were to take off your sandals for you were standing on holy ground. God sends one to go into the promised land for his people and he himself goes with them. This is no one else but Jesus. Now it's not an incarnate form. He has the likeness of a man. There are a number of ways to explain it, but there's no doubt this is Christ standing before him saying, I will go into the land with you. You see, it's the wrong question because God is definitely with his people. He has been with his people from the beginning. He has promised that he would be with them. He has given them signs and demonstrations that he is with them. But Joshua cannot 
forever forget the fact that it is not enough for God to be with them. He also has to be with God. Frankly, the remainder of Joshua 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, all five of those chapters are pointed at the fact that when the people are right before God, when they are with God, when they listen to the voice of God, things go well. When they don't listen to God, things go badly. Chapter 6. We have immediately in the first seven verses the fall of Jericho. These verses, by the way, you should ignore the chapter division here. This is still the commander of the army of the Lord talking to Joshua. It's clear that he is the Lord, and now he is simply referred to as the Lord. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And all the priests shall blow the trumpets. And then when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. I imagine this was difficult for Joshua to take back to the people. This is his first battle as commander and I have very little understanding of military strategy and I am not one to speak against the Lord but this plan is horrible right this is a ridiculous and ludicrous plan that just doesn't make sense and if you were Joshua this is not what you want to go back to your people with so it's the plan we're going to lay up siege works we're going to dig a tunnel what, what kind of cool words when do we get to stabby stab you know we, we really want to get on the battle of, of fighting and he says well, well there's going to be some marching and then we're going to break and then the next day we're going to march and blow some horns. And really this is going to repeat. And then we're going to do a lot of it on the last day and really, really blow. And then, uh, and then we're going to win. And, uh, and the people just seem to be for it, right? Like it's a ridiculous plan, but that's the whole point. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. And the only way that it works is because God makes it work. The fact that it's frankly ridiculous is the whole point. This only happens because God allows it to happen. As the people follow the plan of God, Jericho falls. The good happens because of the destruction of Jericho and the people listening to the voice of the Lord. It does, take not, it does not take long before the bad happens and the sin of Achan. We read in chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. Eh, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole of the people go up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua tears his clothes, goes in before the Lord, and in verse 10, God says to Joshua, 
Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because, I have become, because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Achan took that which didn't belong to him and he hid it. And it seems like a minor thing. Listen, all of the battles that you are going to read about pertaining to thousands and thousands and thousands of men here pertains to a very small thousands of men and only 36 people died. But Israel, on their second battle, the only battle that they've actually undertaken on their own, they were routed. 36 men died. Achan and his sin affects everybody. If there's nothing else that you learn from this, listen, your sin is communal. It is about community. You cannot sin in private. It always becomes public and it always affects those who are around you. There's no way to keep it only to yourself and it's gangrenous. Even though it's just one man, many others suffer and even though it's only 36 men, that is only a grace of God that it was only 36 men. If God wanted this to happen at a bigger battle, thousands upon thousands of men would have died. This is simply a taste so that they will right themselves before God. And Achan is found out as the people turn away from God. Even one man has turned away from God. The people fail. But then comes the good again. They deal with the sin. They deal with what God has given them. And what happens? The fall of Ai. And not only does the fall of Ai happen, but God, because he's brilliant, uses the sin in order to give the victory. So what does he say? He says, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to take up 30,000 men, but you're going to lie in wait, and you're going to ambush these people. And what you're going to do is you're going to send 3,000 men up to the gate, and when they come up to the gate, then you're going to turn and hightail it away, and the men of Ai are going to say, hey, this happened before. We've seen this play. We're going to chase them, and we're going to destroy them, and at that time, you are going to ambush them. You're going to cut them off from behind and you're going to slaughter the whole bunch of them. Read with me in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall not take as plunder for yourselves lay an ambush against the city behind it. The trap is laid and the people fall for it and Jericho and Ai are both destroyed. But then again comes the bad, the Gibeonite deception in chapter 9. Many people will read the Gibeonite deception as a parallel story with that of Rahab. And they will say, no, the Gibeonites here are doing well. Okay, so they know, and the Gibeonites say as much, they know we're not going to be able to stand against Israel. So this is what they say, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 9. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn-out torn, um, wineskins worn-out, torn, and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. They sound like millennials buying these bad already hold clothes, right? And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. 
And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Ah, for their part, this is pretty brilliant, right? So they find the Tom Hanks and the Denzel Washington of Gibeon. They pack them up with worn out clothes. They send them to Israel and they say, hey, we've come from a really far distance and we want you to make a covenant with us. And if you make a covenant with us, you can't destroy us, right? That's how this works, right? You should really make a covenant with us, right? Because we've come from a long distance. Now, some people view this as a good thing. This is not like Rahab, though. These people are not confessing anything about the God of heaven or the God of the earth. Rahab, when the spies come to her and she says, not only have I seen what's going on and not only do I know that Israel is going to run through us, but I know that Yahweh, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. They have nothing like this. This is purely to save their skin. There's two things that point at this being an evil action. There's actually three things that point at this being an evil action by the Israelites. One, in Deuteronomy 7, God was very clear that you are not in any way, shape, or form to make a treaty or a covenant with any of the people in the promised land. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And yet here, specifically, they're asking for a covenant. Later on in verses 14 and 15, we hear not only does Joshua make a covenant, but the people didn't rely upon the Lord. In verse 14, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them, The Gibeonites get off. It seems like a minor thing. It doesn't seem like a defeat. But man, you keep reading in the book of Joshua and especially in the book of Judges and what do you find? This is the first of many incidents where people are not driven out of the promised land. And those many incidents where people are not driven out become many snares and many traps to the people of Israel so that by the end of the book of Judges, there is no difference between the Canaanites who are there and the Israelites who are there now. This is the spot of gangrene that will take over all of Israel in the years to come. The deception of the Gibeonites is bad, but the destruction of the five kings that happens in chapter 10 is good. And again, you see God using the sin of the people of Israel to promote what is good and right. And while what they did for the people of Gibeon was not good, The result of that is that these five kings come together. We read in verse 3, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon. They called them together and said, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. So Gibeon becomes a lure for these other people and it allows Joshua to come and destroy completely all of them. The pinnacle of this is Joshua asking for the sun to stand still in the middle of the day. And God listens to his voice because he is doing what God has commanded him to do. He is going to war with the nations. When the people do what God commands them, when they are with God, he supports them 
good things happen. When they are against God, bad things happen. Rot happens. Destruction happens. The question is not whether God is for the Israelites because he's shown that. The question is whether or not the Israelites are with God. Secondly, secondly, it's not just the wrong question, but Joshua has the wrong assumptions. Joshua assumes in his question that God will be with them. And he assumes that now because God has shown so strongly that he is with the people of Israel, no matter what Israel does, God will always be with them. God is very clear that is not the case. If you fall away from me, I will fall away from you. God as much as says so when he says, I will no longer be amongst the people if there is sin amongst the people. There's a number of assumptions that we make that leads to the sort of bad theology that we've had, that we've talked about, where where people assume that simply because of a one-time act on their part, that no matter how they live from that point on out, that means that they're saved. Sometimes it's simply because we think that people are generally good, or we, we think wrongly about what it means to confess, to confess Christ. So we'll go to Romans 10. And we'll hear, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we say, that's pretty easy. So, so anyone who comes forward, opens their mouth and says, Jesus is Lord, has made a good confession. Indeed, we would say that is a good confession to make. Has made a good confession and therefore is saved. But listen, so the, the confession in the book of Romans, that Jesus is Lord, is different, fundamentally, by nature, different than any confession that would come out of any of your mouths that Jesus is Lord, because you don't live in Rome. Because in Rome, there was another Lord, and especially in the book of Romans, there was another Lord, and his name was Caesar. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to look at the very heart of all of the world and say, that man is not. It is a confession that along with it cries out for a devotion of all of your life. You cannot proclaim that Jesus is Lord in the midst of the Roman Empire and especially not in Rome without being able and fully willing to give up your life for that confession. That confession itself is your life. That is not the way it is in America. But even if that's not the case, Paul continually backs up the idea that it is never a one-time confession that gets you saved. Your assumptions are wrong. He talks about the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, meaning not only that God will persevere you, but that you will persevere that your faith will be continuing and abiding, that you will continue to mature in your faith. This is what he says to the Colossians, Colossians 1, 21 and 23. Listen to these words. You, who were once alienated and hostile in mind. It's, there's no good people. God converted you. You hated God. You fought against God. You were evil in your mind against God. And God has converted you. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith. Not only is the end goal to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, but you only get there if you continue in the faith. There is no moment of salvation. There is a life of salvation. 
As the Anglican priest most famously said, I am saved, I have been saved, and I will be saved. We have the wrong assumptions. And thirdly, we then have the wrong outcomes. We have the wrong outcomes. The salvation that is given to us in Christ calls for balance and tension. And it is not a tension that's easily solved by simply saying you're saved by grace alone. It's true. That's true. But that's half of the story. The New Testament calls for holiness. It's not an Old Testament phenomenon. It is not something that we simply find in the Old Testament. It calls for a devotion to Christ that doesn't have any rivals whatsoever. If you don't hate your mother and brothers and fathers and sisters and love me, you have no place in the kingdom of God. It is incredibly difficult to find stronger statements than the ones that come out of Jesus' mouth himself to talk about the devotion that you need to have to Christ. It is not enough simply to speak of grace and not to speak of the holiness that we need to have. There is a tension, there is a tension between grace given to us and the holiness that we must have between the assurance that we have by his grace and the despair that we feel because we are sinful. There is always going to be a tension between those things. The tension shouldn't go away. So often in the New Testament, we realize that it seems like we're on the edge of a knife. On the one side, we fall into legalism. We fall into this trap where we think that we must do good works in order to be saved. And so we work so hard so that God will appreciate us, so that God will love us. We work so that we can make our way into his good merit. That is rightly condemned in Christian thought. The book of Galatians. No one, by the way, in the book of Galatians thinks that you can earn your way to salvation. Both Paul's opposition, the Galatians themselves, and Paul all agree that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that no one can be justified apart from faith. But they've also thought that you need to be circumcised in order to enter into the people of God. And the stunning conclusion that Paul comes to in Galatians 5 is this. Look, after all of his arguments, this is, this is the capstone of everything. This is his conclusion. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that is, if the Gentiles accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. That is what his whole point is. You can't just take part of it. If you want to be circumcised, the whole law is yours and you've got to keep it. And Paul has already, and the Jews have already, and everyone else who knows Christ has already come to the conclusion that that can't happen. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. To support in any way, shape, or form that you can earn your place before God is a rampant legalism and it is condemned in the strongest terms, but so is the other side. We are quick to criticize legalism, but we need to be just as quick to criticize licentiousness. Thinking that grace just becomes a reason and a license to go out and sin. Paul says, shall we sin so, or, so that grace may abound? May it never be. Jude puts it even more 
difficult. There are people who have crept in unnoticed, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. On the one side, you fall into saying that works matter too much. On the other side, you fall and say that holiness doesn't matter at all. And either side, you are balancing on a knife's edge. There is a negative way to put it, but there's a positive way that we can frame this as well. We tend to think of these things negatively, as though we are precariously balanced, as though we are ready to fall at any particular time. Almost 43 years ago, on August 7th, some of you are around for this, uh, 1974, Pastor, I don't know, uh, close though, uh, 1974, August 7th, uh, there was a man named Philippe Petit. He was, uh, he was a Frenchman, and he stretched illegally a wire across the two twin towers in New York City. And he proceeded to, without any net, 1,350 feet above ground level, to walk across that wire eight times, stopping in the middle to do little ditties and dances without any safety net or anything below him. 45 minutes he did this. That was foolish and stupid, although he lived. And we can feel like that's our lot in life. As we walk through life, we've got to stand that tightrope. Falling to the left is death and falling to the right is death. And so we've somehow got to say that works are important and we stay by trying to be holy, but we don't want to ever concede that holiness somehow earns our salvation so grace is free and our salvation is free and we always walk with that tension. But maybe it's better to think that instead of the gravity of sin always pulling us down, that grace acts as a way to prevent us from falling down. That grace supports both the forgiveness of our sins and empowers our obedience. So that unlike gravity pulling us down, we have a faithful guide that when we tip to the right, pulls us back to the left. And when we tip to the left, he pulls us back to the right. So that our works are supplied by grace just as much as grace forgives our sin. Grace is all in all. Look again, again, at what happens in these five chapters. Every time Israel's sin happens, what does God do? He uses that sin to reverse and give them victory. AI thinks that they've won a great victory by chasing off the people of God, and God uses that victory, that very defeat of Israel, to bring down AI. He didn't have to do that. He could have just had their city walls fall in. But he wanted to use the sin of the people of Israel to give them victory. He does the same thing for Gibeon. It is the failure of Israel to do right before God that God then uses to give them victory over all of the other kings. He does this in your life as well. Grace is there both to forgive your sins and to propel you forward in obedience. Grace itself rebukes our privilege and pride And it also repels our sin and unrighteousness. The purpose of the great promises of Romans 10 and John 10, where where Jesus talks about, I will hold them in my hand and no one will take them out, is not to drive us to sin so that grace might abound. Just like our song, He will hold me fast, is not there simply to say, I can live however I want, He will hold me fast. But it is meant in the very nature of picturing Christ keeping you to drive you to love him all the more and to be obedient to him all the more. That's what those promises are for. 
the promises, the grace that Christ holds you is to propel your obedience. The purpose of these songs, the purpose of those passages is to make us love Christ more, to hold him fast and honor him with our lives. It is in this, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, that Christ loves us and it is in Christ alone that grace is given and that through Christ alone we become more than conquerors.